one of the lads on the rope actually slipped, slid about 20 feet down. We had to rush then, the Cation man had slipped because he had a good bit to fall like if he did go. He was sort of clinging onto the side of the cliff with his fingers. So I immediately carried out my ABCs, you know, checked his airway, his breathing and his circulation. And while I was checking his airway, you know, I realised there what the problem was. It wasn't the fact that he hadn't actually had a heart attack, he was actually drunk as a skunk. You know, you could uh, smell the sangria off him <laughs> from about three feet away, you know. Hello, Air Corps helicopter, search and rescue. Search and rescue, crew, scramble. The Irish Air Corps has been operating rescue helicopters since November 1963. It has flown over 5,000 missions and has saved more than 3,700 lives. I think it's important to understand the actual team effort that goes into these rescues, the amount of people that are actually involved both in the aircraft and on the ground backing it up. Uh, in Finner, for instance, we have generally eight or nine people who are actually working as a member of the team. We have the pilot who is the captain of the aircraft and he's, he's in charge of the operation. He's also generally the flying pilot during winching operations. The co-pilot, as well as flying the aircraft in various legs, also flight manages the, the operation in that he looks after the fuel planning, he looks after the navigation, he looks after the communications, and in sea rescues he also looks after the radar, so a fairly busy individual. The winch operator acts as the eyes of the pilot where the pilot becomes unsighted either in night operations or simply because the casualty is directly below the winchman's uh, the winch operator's door and the pilot can't see him. And neither can he actually see obstacles which may strike the tail of the rotors which are behind him. Or he may not see the casualty or a, a ship which is directly below him. So all the time, as well as looking out in front or looking at instruments, he's listening to a constant patter coming from the winch operator, talking to him, telling him to move forward, move left, uh, climb or descend. Donald Tower, Air Corps Rescue Helicopter Alpha 195, requesting liftoff. Alpha 195, your first lift, 192 to 9er, QH 1015. No local traffic. Okay, so good position now. Winchman is with survivors on the deck now. Good position, steady, steady. Vessel underway, steady now. Good position now, very choppy out there. Looking good, looking good. Height is good, and you're clear in now. Clearing forward for the pickup for the first survivor. Forward three, good line, good speed. Steady, good position now. Forward two again now, forward two, back in, just a wave passing through there. We'll just wait for a calm one to come in now. And forward one for the pickup, steady, Richmond have the hook now. And survivors in this drop, on the hook, and up gently. Okay, so you're clear back to a start point. Oh, you have the boat inside. Oh, just a bit of a snag there. Waves at catching survivor. Okay, the water's breaking over him, and all I can see is line in the water. Okay, good thing. He's on the line, he's on the line, no problem. Good position, no problem. And the wave actually helped us, that's dampening out the swing. And winching in now. 
winching it. And your boat for now, I'll just look after getting the survivor inboard. By far the most difficult job of the whole mission falls upon the helicopter winchman, especially in the Atlantic Ocean when you arrive overhead a trawler which has been tossed by Atlantic seas and that, and it's possible that it's nighttime, poor visibility, huge seas running and that, a lot of spray in the air and everything like that. And um, once the helicopter's flown and positioned behind the boat in conjunction with the uh, flying pilot and the winch operator, then it falls upon the helicopter winchman to leave the helicopter. And this is by far the most dangerous occupation probably within the whole of the Air Corps because he leaves on this thin tread of wire, possibly about 90 metres of it, on the helicopter and he's lowered into the blackness all on his own. He's now, his life is in the hands of both the pilot and the winch operator. They are totally in control of his fate and basically all he can do is give hand signals or talk on the small radio that he has. And it has to be appreciated when you're hanging down there some 60 to 70 feet underneath a helicopter at night time. Below you is the wild Atlantic Ocean and the white waves and everything like that. And you're looking at the back of this huge, possibly a Spanish trawler net, which is going up and down in this huge sea and everything like that and crashing down. And you wonder to yourself, am I ever going to get onto the back of this successfully or am I going to be broken up or whatever the case is? So as you move closer to it and that, and occasionally on bad nights, as you're about 10 or 15 feet from it, you see the props coming out of the water now, and you see the props rotating freely in the water, and then suddenly they drop back down into the water, and you look ahead of you, and you see the mass of this huge fishing boat you know, disappearing, going left and right, whizzing past, and as I say, your fate is in your winch operator at this stage, and, that, and he successfully moves you in overhead the deck, and you know at any moment that if he sees something going wrong, that he's going to pluck you away from the back of the boat and away from danger. But after, after a while, you're successfully moved in overhead the deck and you're dropped onto the deck and then you disconnect from the heist and that and the helicopter falls back away and that and you're on your own, possibly with a non-English-speaking crew and that and you have to find the casualty, treat the casualty, put the casualty into the deck. On all during this, you're being pounded by huge waves and everything like that. The noise of the boat's engines and the tremendous roar of the Atlantic Ocean in a major storm and you get on, the winchman gets on his radio and he calls in the helicopter and out of the, the mist and the darkness and that you see the landing lights of the helicopter coming towards you and then this tin silver strand of cable stretching some 50, 60, 70 feet underneath the helicopter with its brightly coloured orange hook moving towards you and you know this is my lifeline is coming towards me and eventually after some positioning in that you get the heist hook in your hand, you hook on the stretcher and you hook yourself onto it and give the thumbs up signal and suddenly you're whisked and pulled off the deck and you're flying through the air and moving away from the rolling and tossing ship and that and you're being winched into safety of the, into the safety of the helicopter. It's a fantastic feeling for any winchman to know that he's eventually been taken back off the ship and that and he has successfully rescued the casualty. It is a major feeling to have of helping humanity. We're moving back in now, have the winchman in the doorway and winching out now. And uh, 20 foot of cable out. Okay. 20 foot of cable out, good position now. So just as I got him into the stretcher, that's when he regained consciousness. Like he woke up, obviously, looking around, you know, noisy helicopter, the whole lot, you know. He was totally confused, so um, basically I was telling him, like, trying to explain to him that he had to go to the hospital. And uh, no, there was no way he wanted to go to the hospital. I said, no, you are going. I just tried to explain that to him. And then all of a sudden, um, we, we were trying to put his arms in the last uh, straps, you know, and he was struggling there, so... We were holding his arms then, and then he must have felt, you know, totally um, paranoid at that stage. So, uh, naturally, he just lashed out then, you know. I, I didn't know what had happened. I was lying like, on my side, like, what had happened, like, you know. He had to hit me about three times, so... Uh, 
I was totally unprepared for this because normally uh, you go down and the, the idea is to actually help people, you know, not to, not to get expected to get beaten up by them, you know. So I was kind of shocked at the system as well, you know, another shock on top of the, the initial one. We had to force his arms into the stretcher. Basically, we moved him over to the starboard side again and that's where another funny moment happened as well because while his arms in, he was screaming and shouting you know, at this stage now. It was just unbelievable, you know, you could see his neck veins, you know, being engorged there. It was just like, you know, I was getting worried about him now at this stage. He was putting so much of a, a fight up and uh, we were just about to winch him off when uh, his arms got out again, you know. He just lashed out with his arms, grabbed me by the boatswain's chair and was a kind of a low lip on the side of the boat, about two and a half feet. And he nearly pulled me overboard. You know, he, he was so strong, you know, and uh, kind of enraged, I suppose. So I was like... This guy, you know, if this guy gets out in the aircraft, you know, he could cause a major accident, you know. <laughs> he could cause us to ditch in the water or something like that. I was just, I said, that's it, like, you know, we had to put him back down again. And I had to actually go up to the wheelhouse. And uh, I got onto, you know, Channel 16, the emergency channel, to communicate with the aircraft. And, you know, I was, like, ready to blow a gasket, you know. But, like, uh, they managed to just calm me down and say, relax, you're doing fine, and everything else. So I went back down. But uh, we managed to actually get his arms in this time and um, as the hook came in the hook up he hooked up did a nice clean lift everything was perfect and I was looking at him like that trying to reassure him and all the bravado everything you know all the enraged everything the minute we actually left the deck it just stopped and he just became still and which one alongside a survivor now survivor is against a rock face now holding on bit of a snack here survivor's not letting go Bit of a snag, steady. Okay, Winchman is securing Survivor to the rock face. Good position, steady, steady. Holding nice. looking good there, John. The Air Corps Helicopter Rescue Service has been operating successfully for 33 years. But what was it like before the helicopters arrived? Freddie Bond was chief instructor of the Irish Parachute Club and was involved dropping emergency food supplies to people who were cut off due to bad weather. The situation was... Very primitive. We didn't have any people in our government establishment who had any thought for disasters, catastrophes, or what not to, what to do about it in the future. Whatever body was there, there was a way of thinking about these things that we didn't need electric light and it was forced upon us by the rest of the world. The people outside that lawn at a little place were told they should be in bed at half past ten. Who wanted a streetlight on it at that hour? <laughs> people had to save money. Helicopters? They were incredible things that were run by the Americans and everybody else. We had a few problems here. People lost and British helicopters came over looking for them. We had people in mountains and people in valleys who'd uh, soon be in trouble in, in bad weather. People were always expected to put up with blizzards, storms, being cut off, living on dried fish for weeks at a time. But because the boat couldn't get out, an open boat couldn't get out, and the great seas around our coasts. Well, I thought when I was thinking of setting up the parachute club, it wasn't a parachute club I was setting up. It was a service that had a certain number of aims. One was to get young people involved in a very particular sport, not a sport at the time, but activity. Uh, also to be of service to the community in dropping down food supplies or bales of hay to animals or people in medical in trouble in islands, we could put down medical teams to them. Until such time as we got helicopters, 
to put these teams down in the case of a trouble or disaster or a ship coming ashore or blizzards or whatnot to help the community. The weather conditions during the last week or so of 1962 and for the whole month of January 1963 were particularly harsh, mainly with very heavy falls of snow throughout the country and with a prolonged cold period of weather. I remember myself that this started on Christmas Day or in the early hours of Stevens's Day and uh, it was such that when I was finished my own duty at Baldonnell, mobility out of the camp was not possible due to the, the amount of snow. Now, the heavy snow and the resulting drifting of many areas and the impassable nature of the roads, which lasted for weeks, brought very strong comment both from the public and from the press and it was directed both at central and local government and there were renewed calls for the establishment of a helicopter rescue service. In January 1963 the government announced that helicopters would be provided for rescue purposes and that they would be operated by the Air Corps. Having assessed the helicopter market the Air Corps recommended the purchase of the French Alouette 3. The government accepted the recommendation and a contract with Sioux Aviation was signed in May. Commandant McMahon and Lieutenant Kelly of the Air Corps went to France for specialist training on the Alouette. J.P. Kelly and myself set up for France in October '63 to convert into the Alouette 3. We had a marvellous period with uh, Jean Boulet, who was well-known in the helicopter aviation world. He was the chief pilot and we were very fortunate to have him as an instructor for part of the time but they were all test pilots and certainly they knew their stuff. The 15 hours or 20 hours or whatever we had was the most marvellous experience generally with them. What did scare me when it came to our use for the LO83 when we would bring it back to Ireland was rescuing people from the water. The French idea was absolutely scary. And uh, I remember saying to JP several times, how in the name of God, because we were doing our training out in the Mediterranean in pond conditions. I said, how in the name of God with this are we going to get out of the cliffs of Moher in, in 20, 30 foot waves and trawlers tossing around in the place or a fellow bobbing around in the water and trying to rescue him. Their idea was that a fellow jumped into the water with the hoist on him and he swam to the survivor and put the strap on the survivor. But he was in front of the pilot where the pilot could see him. So a winch operator was, was really not used uh, in that case. And I said, that's fine in the Mediterranean, but it won't work in the North Atlantic. And I remember having to get on to Colonel Billy Keane and tell him the story and suggested that he would send... Um, the other two officers, either Christy Carey or, or Farius O'Connor, are both to the RAF with some of our NCOs and men to see what their method was, and certainly theirs was the right. I don't think the helicopters would have lasted long if we had to uh, adopt the French method. It was all right, as I said, in the Mediterranean. The highlight of that, as far as I can remember, was one was mountain flying training, which we did in the Alps, and um, the auto-rotation training, which involved cutting the engine and landing safely. One of the things you did in training was to do a flight at altitude because 
it's much more difficult because the air is less dense, so the controls are less effective. Unbeknownst to us, the chief test pilot decided to combine this exercise with a very effective demonstration of auto-rotation. So we did the flight to altitude, and um, by the time we reached 15,000 feet, we were out over the Mediterranean, and suddenly he chopped the engine, and he said, you are now going to auto-rotate. Barney and I looked at each other and wondered where to. So he pointed down and we could see a little dot in the sea. And he said, that's a little island. We're going to land on that. So we did, which was the most effective uh, demonstration of how the helicopter auto-rotates and can be controlled if you lose your engine. On the 26th of November, two Alouette helicopters, numbers 195 and 196, were flown from France and landed at Baldonnell on a dark, wet and windy evening. This event was the opening page of one of the most glorious chapters in the history of the Air Corps. The early days, well, when we got back, we had to start training, and we didn't have any equipment or a rescue boat in those days. So the RNLI very kindly came to our assistance by, by allowing us to work with their lifeboats. One of our principal Organisers in this area was the operations officer, Commandant Desi Johnson, who insisted on uh, making all the arrangements personally and had to come with us on the first uh, exercise with the lifeboat and indeed had to be the first man to be lowered on the cable onto the lifeboat. And uh, John said, who, who's going to go down on the cable? And I said, seeing as I ordered the operation, I said, I'll go. He said, OK. So I got the harness round under my arms and stepped out into space and was lowered a reasonable distance down and then they approached the lifeboat and I was waiting for the bump but he misjudged he was going too fast and everything he misjudged see they'd never done this before so this is just practice but anyway instead of pulling up slowly he did a whoops around like that and I was out at the end of the wire like a like a some chestnut on the end of a rope you know and we drowned, I mean, the dope on the rope, as somebody said, but uh, we drowned him in again, and he missed it again. He did exactly the same thing. He said, I had no communication with him. He said, for God's sake, wheezy boy, this thing will break or something, you know. But went round again anyway, and then he came in, and he had it right this time, and I was landed with the thunk onto the, on my spine on the deck of the lifeboat, and I hurled the harness off like lightning. And I didn't know what was going to happen next. So the... The uh, lieutenant commander came over and said, Desi, he said, is that the first time? I said, that's the first time in this country, as far as I know. And he said, you're in, if you were in England, you'd be given one of these um, medals, that gold one. He said, that was, that was horrendous. <laughs> so we went home. And that was, we began to do exercise on the airfield after that. It was a lot safer. <laughs> but they've become absolutely expert now over the years. They've saved so many lives and got... Uh, terrific awards for bravery and they've been absolutely out of this world. You can put them anywhere and they've been come out ahead of everybody. One of the most dramatic and dangerous missions occurred on Muckish Mountain, County Donegal in August 1977. Owen Sherry was the winch man. Paddy O'Shea and Willie Byrne and myself with the crew of the rescue helicopter, after it took about um, eight to ten minutes to position the helicopter into a 
rescue position with Donal in the other helicopter some 50 metres just above us with his locator light shining on the casualty. After we moved up along the side of the cliff and that, and uh, Paddy, being the pilot, had great difficulty in positioning the helicopter close to the uh, cliff area and that, after about 10 to 12 minutes, this was successfully completed and that, even though the aircraft was being buffeted from downdrafting from the uh, helicopter which was above us and that, I was lowered um, from the helicopter to an area approximately 25 feet away from where the girl was on a ledge. And the ledge being so narrow and uh, Willie not being able to see me, um, I hadn't sufficient cable from the helicopter to move along the ledge. And that, so I had my only option was to signal the girl to move towards me, which after a few minutes she started moving towards me. And eventually she got into a position where I could grab her by the arm. But unfortunately, just as I grabbed her by the arm, the ledge we were both standing on collapsed. And we both slid down an embankment for about 25 feet before going out over a cliff area with about uh, 800 to 900 feet of a sheer drop into the valley. The only contact I had with the girl at this stage was I was holding her by the arm and I had been turned upside down on the rescue chair which I was sitting in, holding onto her by the arm. But fortunately, we swung back in over a small grassy ledge and I had time, just as we hit it, to put the rescue strope around her before we swung back out again into open air and... Um, all bred a sigh of relief as we were successfully winched into the helicopter. At this stage, the helicopter then moved away from the cliff area and it was decided that we would drop this girl into the uh, car park at the base of the mountain because the, um, of the dangers involved in having the two casualties on board at the same time and, that, and the weight penalty and that that we had. So we moved away and successfully landed in the base of the mountainside, dropped the casualty off and took off once again to fly up to the top of the mountain to effect the rescue of her male counterpart who was some... 200 to 300 feet above her on the side of Muckish Mountain. This time it took again about 8 to 10 minutes to position the helicopter close into the cliff and the main rotor blades at times on this rescue were some 8 to 10 inches from the, uh, from the cliff and our landing light was shining up into the blades so that Paddy could see where the main rotor blades were and Donald's, who was some 25 to 30 metres above us, his landing light was shining directly down on top of the male casualty Again, I was lowered from the helicopter, but this time it was much easier because I landed directly beside the um, male survivor and just put the rescue strop onto him and was winched successfully off the cliff area up into the helicopter. And then once I was on board, the helicopter moved away in the darkness into the valley and descended down and shortly followed by Donald and Dick in the second Alouette helicopter. And once we arrived on the ground, we got a tremendous re reception and welcome from all the people on the ground and uh, the locals and that of applause and uh, well done and everything like that. And uh, everyone bred a sigh of relief as we successfully touched down. Both helicopter crews were awarded Distinguished Service Medals, the highest honour that can be given in peacetime. The Air Corps rescue helicopters were also used to provide an air ambulance service. Brigadier General Connolly explains how this came about. One of the, the great problems facing the country was that in the 50s and in the 60s, with the increase in the number of cars on roads and that, there seemed to be a tremendous increase in the number of horrific accidents where people's necks would be broken, spines badly injured, limbs very severely damaged. And the problem was that many of the rural hospitals were unable, didn't have the personnel or the equipment to deal with cases like this. And the only hope of saving these people's lives very often was they had to be transported to Dublin. And these often were long journeys on bad roads and sometimes trying to get into inaccessible places with road transport. 
so that by the time the patient arrived in Dublin, they were nearly worse off than when they started out. So, of course, it, it was only a short step from establishing a search and rescue service with helicopters to establishing an air ambulance service. One could say that the procedures that were devised for the ambulance service and that further evolved subsequently in the fullness of time worked remarkably well with relatively few hiccups and it wouldn't be too much to claim that many a life would have been lost and many a body would have remained physically shattered had the air ambulance service not been available to access the seriously ill and injured speedily to appropriate medical and surgical attention. Good morning to you, Eileen. Happy mum, Eileen Lyons, mother of Thomasina. Don't worry, I'll talk to her in a moment now. She's looking very cautiously. But I see she's wearing my badge. I see she has the badge strapped on. That's great. I saw Gay Byrne on RTE Radio. Wonderful. Um, you feel pretty grateful to the Air Corps, oh, do you not? very know? grateful, Gay, really. I can't express how I feel. Um, really, only for David Sparrow that day. You know, she wouldn't have had the opportunity to be saved, you know. Mm. How much premature was she? She was uh, 15 weeks. I was 25 weeks pregnant when I had her. And and was she the size of his hand, Justin? 11 inches long. 11 <laughs> inches, let yes, me just think about yeah. 11 inches long, yeah. and she, she weighed at that stage what? Um, a pound and a half. During my career of flying Alouettes, um, I've taken part in, in a large amount of air ambulances, up to 80 or 90, in fact. But one which stands out in particular was one which I did back in the mid-80s. And it was an incubator air ambulance where we scrambled from Baldonnell and flew to the General Hospital in Tralee. And uh, we all had done a number of incubator air ambulances uh, prior to that, but um, when the actual... Uh, child was brought out to the helicopter in the incubator and uh, was being loaded in. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw just how small this little girl was. To say that she was akin to a, a small doll that she'd buy her daughter it wouldn't be over-exaggerating. She turned out to be Thomasina, which is her name, and speaking to the rest of the crews afterwards I was, I was affected by what I had seen and uh, we, we came up with a little nickname for her, which we gave her, we gave her Tumbelina as a nickname, and I thought it was very, very appropriate. Thomasina was so small that I remember en route from Tralee to Dublin that the medical staff on board had to carry out some form of an emergency procedure on her, and I think it involved either inserting an IV drip or administering an injection. But she was so small that even the vibrations in the helicopter made that particular procedure impossible. So we finished up actually landing in uh, some farmer's field down south of the Schlieve Blooms, uh, which surprised a herd of cattle, if I remember rightly, at the time. But uh, in the end, anyway, uh, we got her safely to her destination. And uh, I didn't hear a lot more about Thomasina after that. I, t I tend not to follow up on the air ambulances that I do, because uh, unfortunately not all of them finish up uh, where the actual survivor survives. But uh, the following Christmas, I received a Christmas card from Thomasina's parents. And uh, it was a fabulous card to get because it was some, uh, perhaps six months or so after we had delivered her to Dublin. And she had been so small and frail at the time of delivery that she, she had only been released to go home uh, around about the Christmas of that year. And the card uh, basically gave me the good news. And uh, it certainly helped make my Christmas that year. 
Um, I haven't seen Thomasina Den for a number of years, and then uh, thanks to the Gay Byrne show on RTE a number of years ago when he did a, a special on the Air Corps, uh, I came face to face with Thomasina and her mother, and uh, I must say that was a, a very, very uh, fulfilling and happy occasion. But it sometimes happens that the rescuers themselves need rescuing, as Derek Keegan of the Irish Mountain Rescue Association has experienced. The rescue pilot was Commandant Donal Cotter. We got word to say that our services were required in Hollywood, County Wicklow, to rescue a climber who had fallen off cliffs and required to be transported to hospital. And we arrived in Hollywood and located a casualty uh, who was winched aboard a helicopter. It was uh, a mountain rescue training exercise that was happening. And uh, when the casualty got on board the helicopter, um, little did we realise, but it was one of our close working friends, uh, Derry Keegan, who uh, was uh, very active in the Dublin Wicklow Mountain Rescue Team. And he had been injured while demonstrating some techniques to students. I can remember when we were in the helicopter, they took me up on the paraguard stretcher. And I can recall saying to the winchman that day, who's your number one pilot? And he just kept looking at me. And um, again, I repeated, who's your number one pilot? And eventually he, he made contact with the crew up front, the number one, the number two. And he said, uh, seems we have Derek Keegan back here. And there seemed to be a bit of confusion amongst the uh, the crew because they knew I would possibly be one of the team leaders on the ground, but to actually have me strapped down the back. That was one for their record books. Sometimes a rescue mission can be quite unusual. At about uh, half past four in the morning, it was in the summertime, so it happened to be bright, I received a call for uh, a search and rescue in Dundalk Bay. We had scant details of what was actually involved. All we knew was that there was a, an individual stuck in Dundalk Bay in a boat. Eventually, when we arrived there, we saw the fire brigade along the coastline just leading up into Dundalk Bay, up into the estuary. And we moved up slowly towards them and we saw a, a small 14-foot uh, boat stuck in the mudflats. And alongside, alongside that was a man who was actually in the mudflats itself. We uh, moved the helicopter over and assessed the situation and uh, we decided we'd winch the winchman down into the boat, which was right beside where this individual was. And uh, we'd a we asked him to try and pull the man out and place him back in the boat again. This was tried and uh, it was unsuccessful because the man who was stuck in the mudflats was stuck almost up to his armpits and it was literally like uh, glue and there was no hope of getting him out. So we recovered the winchman back into the helicopter and we discussed the problem a little bit further. At this stage, uh, I should point out that the, the tide was beginning to turn and come back in again. So there was a, an air of, of uh, tension about the whole thing. Uh, we then decided that we would connect the hoist cable onto the man in the, in the uh, mudflats and try and uh, winch him out slowly with the uh, winch on the aircraft. And we did this, and again we found that uh, there was no way of moving him. And at the same time, we noticed that the tide was still coming in <laughs> and getting closer and closer, so we were getting a little bit more frantic. And eventually we decided that it was uh, all or nothing in this case. We had to go for broke. So we positioned the helicopter directly over the uh, guy who was stuck in the mud, got the cable from the helicopter to him, nice, nice and taut, 
no slackness in it at all. And when we had this achieved, I applied power to the helicopter, which uh, duly rose up into the air. And lo and behold, the individual in the mudflats duly rose up into the air, <laughs> minus, minus every screed of clothing that was ever put in his body. He came up. He came up in his birthday suit. It had all been sucked off him. So when, when he arrived into the helicopter, when we winched him in, he, arri- he arrived up and was exceedingly embarrassed, but very grateful to ha- for having been rescued. So we, uh, we brought him to the local hospital and uh, he, was, he was taken away to the local hospital for assessment. And we found out afterwards that he spent about two hours there, got hospital clothing and, uh, and escaped he uh, was reluctant to, uh, to give his name or identify himself, I think, out of embarrassment. And uh, we brought the helicopter back to Baldonnell and spent uh, several hours trying to wash all the mud that had accumulated in it, <laughs> trying to wash it out and leave it ready for the next, next operation. In 1986, the Air Corps was equipped with the new Dauphin helicopters, which could be operated at night. In the hostile environment of the North Atlantic, they offered new challenges for the rescue crews. One of the most notable missions which stretched the Dauphin and its crew to the limit took place in the very early hours of the 9th of March, 1990. I remember uh, going to bed and saying to myself, hopefully this won't be the night for a call, and as sure as God, and about a half an hour later, at about 20 past 12 that evening, we got a call from MRCC, the Marine Rescue Coordination Centre. And they said that there was a vessel, the, uh, the locative, was taking water, and uh, was sinking somewhere off the northwest northwest coast. I got up, uh, alerted my crew, who was uh, Jim Corby, my co-pilot. Sergeant Ben Hearn was my winch operator, and Corporal David Carlin was my winch man. We assembled together, and we made our way over to the weather forecast station. We had a look at the weather, and we were obviously aware that the weather was poor, and the forecaster reiterated that by saying there was Storm Force 10 conditions in Donegal. Winds up to uh, 50 miles an hour and a very high sea swell running at the time. So knowing that weather, I was concerned about the capabilities of, of the Dauphin to do this lift. So we called in an RAF Nimrod, which would assist in the search, and a seeking helicopter would come from Scotland. The Nimrod arrived in the area and uh, commenced the search. And by chance, the crew of the locative got the radio working and actually got a mayday call out. And their position was fixed at eight miles southwest of Rathlin O'Burn. This position was approximately 10 minutes from where we were loitering off the Sligo coast. So knowing that we had 95 minutes of fuel remaining, we decided to route direct to the scene. And we arrived overhead approximately 10 minutes later. Now, the sea state conditions at the time, we would estimate, were... uh, the vessel was rising and falling uh, approximately 50 feet. And with the automatics that we had for automatic hover on the Dauphin, it was outside the capabilities of the system. So on the way down to the hover point of 100 feet, the aircraft behaved erratically, and I decided to, to fly the aircraft manually. Unfortunately, the position of the vessel was probably the worst position we could have for winching. We would generally prefer that The vessel was in a 30-degree offset position, so that when winching, we could see the vessel at all times, and we actually formate with the vessel. But unfortunately, we would have to, in this case, do an unsighted deck. Again, we decided uh, that we'd have to make a go of this, and we moved in overhead. But once I was in the overhead position, I lost sight of the vessel. 
and there was an extreme danger that the mass of the vessel would actually skewer the underbelly of the aircraft. So after three attempts, I made a decision that we were not going to be in a position to do a lift with the vessel in that position. So at about uh, half three in the morning, the Arnmore lifeboat arrived. And we were sort of happy at that stage that we felt that the lifeboat could, could possibly come alongside, even in the, the atrocious conditions, and take the four individuals off. So we sat in the hover at 100 feet, our lights shining up the area, and we watched in amazement as the lifeboat made several attempts to come alongside the vessel. But at about 10 to 4, the coxswain got on the radio and said that there was no way they could get them off and that uh, it was far too dangerous. In or around the same time, we received a message over the radio that the Sea King, which was on its way from Scotland, had actually turned around due to severe icing and severe weather conditions. So at this stage, we were, or as a crew, we were confronted with a situation where we couldn't do the lift off the vessel. The lifeboat could not do uh, the lift. And we had to come up with a plan to try and get these four individuals off the vessel. So while we were watching this, I got the idea that if the lifeboat couldn't get close enough to take them off, that maybe he could get close enough to put a line onto them. That was suggested. So the, the lifeboat put two tow lines onto the vessel and he was able to turn the vessel around from the so just line dead in the water across the, the swell to us. It meant he was able to turn the boat and hold them on a heading that was suitable for us to winch. So once they did that, we moved in. We were able to put a hoil on onto the vessel fairly quickly and uh, we then were able to put Dave onto the boat. And uh, I must say now, putting Dave onto the boat, I was a little apprehensive putting Dave over the side, winching him out because uh, I wasn't sure at that stage if we were going to be able to do this. Coming overhead and... It was the first time I said to myself, what am I doing here when I should be at home in front of the fire, drinking? Being dropped out overhead, the, the scene was chaotic. The vessel was swamped to the midships. The four-man crew were hanging onto the stern, waiting for rescue. The sea, it was a big sea, it was a very big sea. The, the wind was, was howling, but it was... Usually, you know, you've got a helicopter to go back in, you feel very secure... And usually the, the pilot or co-pilot in very bad conditions would be concerned for the safety of the winchman. However, going out the door and landing on the vessel, seeing the waves sometimes rise higher than the height of the helicopter, but then the helicopter moving so it would miss the next oncoming swell, I felt concerned for their safety on board the helicopter, so I was felt quite secure, even though the vessel was sinking, it was a very secure feeling to know I wasn't in the helicopter while they were trying to do the rescue. So I was put on the deck using the high line technique, which is where we drop weights onto the vessel and a rope from the hand of the winchman is um, pulled onto the vessel by the crew. Again, nothing standard. I landed in the nets, which was a soft landing, considering I landed upside down. And I put the strap on the force survivor and awaited Ben to give me the hook back, to winch the hook back down to me. They had great difficulty getting the hook back to me because we were rising and falling with the sea and they were trying to match our movements with the helicopter which is a very, very difficult thing to do and particularly at night. So I got rid of the force survivor by winching him off. It was like Star Trek. He got beamed up very quickly and uh, there was an enormous swing on the cable which we don't like to have and he, as he was swinging over to sea, a wave caught him and that helped dampen the swing. So that was good. That was lucky enough. And the fear was that he wouldn't come out. I just seen him covered in water and the fear was I wouldn't see him on the end of the wire when he did appear. 
So that happened with the next two survivors. On the toward survivor, the highline snapped as it got the hook. I would like to say I repaired it quickly, but literally what I done was I wrapped it around it, around the hook so that it would make the job easier. I knew the fuel was critical up above and that we hadn't got much time left to rescue. And I knew if I lost contact with the wire by losing the highline, that we were hopefully out there for the night, but probably swimming. And swimming in those conditions, it's not the, not recommended. So they took the hook back up. They, for what seemed like an eternity, which was actually turned out only to be about 10 minutes, bend the winch operator, replaced the high line, and sent it back down to me. So it was time for myself and the last member of the crew to be lifted. Everybody on board, spirits were high, despite the fact that um, the skipper had more or less lost his vessel, but they were glad to be alive. The expression that described that night, and it has been described before, is that search and rescue is hours of boredom interrupted by moments of sheer terror. Taking part in this programme were Airman Dermot Malloy, Airman Kelvin Duffy, Airman Tom Gannon, Sergeant Dave Carolyn, DSM, Commandant Donald Scanlon, Commandant Kevin Byrne, Flight Sergeant Owen Sherry, DSM, Freddie Bond, Lieutenant Colonel Michael O'Malley, Brigadier General Brian McMahon, DSM, retired, Lieutenant Colonel J.P. Kelly, retired, Commandant Des Johnston, retired, Brigadier General Jim Connolly, retired, Commandant David Sparrow, Eileen Lyons, Derek Keegan, Commandant Donald Cotter, Commandant Jerry O'Sullivan, Commandant Jurgen White, DSM, retired, and Sergeant Ben Heron, DSM. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.